This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Magic Blackwater. Serial killers as vampires. Stacey Delorfano. And Caracalla versus Gita. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, someone is field stripping a Dragonov sniper rifle next to another guy who's field stripping an athame. I didn't even know you could field strip an athame. I thought it was just a knife. But it turns out there's more to magic special ops than we have been told. And Robin specifically. Right. Well, okay. First of all, this is a government issue of Thame. Right. So it costs uh, $40,000 for each one. Yeah. Well, they have to be handmade by a virgin in moonlight. So yeah. you can't get that for free, Robin. And and the virgin certification process is even more rigorous. It is very rigorous. Well, actually, I guess this is government surplus. So this is probably yeah. stolen from... A government-supplied athame. Well, the government uh, paid $40,000 for it. It sat in a warehouse for four years, and then they sold it down to the private contractor for $9. Yeah, and, and they threw in some voting machines with uh, crucial information on them for free, gratis. Yeah, that's well, part of the deal. that's just how it works. Yeah. It's it's an athame, Robin, obviously. Right. Obviously. Obviously. So, uh, folks may recall that uh, a couple of episodes ago, we uh, stumbled across the idea of uh, Magic Blackwater as, uh, as part of our uh, previous... Uh, a Liptony Hut uh, segment, or was it Consulting Occultist? I forget. Anyway, it was about Cold War psychic uh, warfare, and uh, we came upon the idea that, uh, hey, what if there's Magic Blackwater? So here in the gaming hut, we're going to explore uh, what that might be in your modern-day uh, occult weirdness game. And so uh, let's take a step back, Ken, and, and uh, as we begin to extrapolate this, uh, let's Look at what a real life uh, Blackwater and its uh, less famous, less sinisterly named equivalents are, are up to, and then start to extrapolate from that as to uh, what a uh, psychic or magical uh, version of that would be doing. So let's first of all assume, for for this purposes, that psychic powers, paranormal powers, exist and are, are measurable, if not uh, well known. So it's not just a scam. Because I'm not sure how you would run a scam as a mercenary version of private. <laughs> that, that, that would be, be that would be bizarre, yes. right? You go to so much more trouble establishing the data by real and legitimate technical means, and then pretend to be a remote. That's like a Mission Impossible episode, and probably yeah. a pretty good one, frankly. Maybe that's a third segment. Fake <laughs> magic Blackwater. Right. Let's stick with with actual with magic. Actual Blackwater magic Blackwater, or rather with or actual Blackwater. Blackwater, or currently Blackwater. Which right. is, of course, not Blackwater anymore. It is now Academy with an I. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and after that, it's going to be juiced with a uh, lowercase j and then everything else uppercase. Exactly. And uh, it will also, like, deliver meals. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it, That's once it merges with Amazon. <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, so, so what does uh, real-life Blackwater uh, do? How does it fit? into the uh, geopolitical economy. Okay, by and large, what Blackwater slash XE services slash 
Academy does is they serve as private security and that can be private security on, you know, civilian safe friendly soil, or it can be private security in a very dangerous part of the world, like at a war zone, such as Iraq or Syria or wherever. And the shading between private security and mercenary is apparently one of those things that people have long, long conferences in Switzerland or other completely war-free places to talk about. But um, they also do security training, which of course shades into military training, because if you're training uh, interior police or gendarmes, you're basically training them in military, uh, methodologies, which means you could be training the equivalent of green berets in another country, or you could be doing sort of the green beret thing in another country of training actual combat armed soldiers. So that's Blackwater's sort of gig. And it depends on exactly how tightly you draw the line, but basically they are a blend of uh, Renacop security and mercenaries and the size of the blend. I think it depends on the year. It depends on whether or not the government is desperately looking to fill job slots in Iraq or whether the government can actually afford to be a little pickier. And right. it because depends. it's not just private security, like at your, uh, you know, local bank or, uh, uh, luxury hotel. It's private security in war zones. Yeah. Ergo, the whole mercenary bit. I mean, they also do private security in your bank or luxury hotel, but it's your bank or luxury hotel that you expect to be hit by hard, you know, hardened criminals. So maybe it's a bank or a luxury hotel in Colombia or a bank or a luxury hotel in Mexico where there are military, militarized uh, dangers out there, but you're still basically providing standard sort of security services. You're not going up into the hills to hunt down the guerrillas that might come out and attack your bank. Right. So that's their niche. Uh, if you uh, need protection from the magical and occult forces that you know are out there, uh, and you would be in this case, uh, you know, the owner of a private concern, or sometimes the military itself, because of course the military uh, winds up. Uh, do they directly employ black uh, water type services, or are they? Is there sort of a the Department of Defense? employs them for contracts like that. And as does the CIA, right. the CIA uses guys like this as deniable paramilitaries and also as, you know, force extenders, uh, for their own, uh, you know, compounds and whatnot. So, you know, the, the, the boundary line is intentionally murky between CIA, CIA paramilitary organizations, some of whom are American, some of whom are foreign, and private security firms hired by the CIA in theory to guard the CIA compound, but maybe to try train some of those other paramilitaries and maybe do other things that we don't know. Because if you're a former Navy SEAL and your job is to work for your Blackwater or whatever, maybe the CIA guy who's actually paying your check comes to you and you know him. You're a patriot. He's an American. He says, we have this one guy off on a hill that needs to die. Maybe you could go take care of that former Navy SEAL with your Navy SEALness. And then you say, yes, sir, right away, sir. And you do it at, you know, three and a half times what you made when you were a Navy SEAL doing the exact same job. So the uh, DOD and the CIA uh, know that magical forces exist. Or yes, because forces. of Project uh, Project Stargate and Grill, Grill Flame, as discussed previously. As discussed previously. Their failure was a cover-up yes. to uh, make the foreign people who are also psychics think that we have given up on psychic warfare, but it's a blind. It's yes. a trick. And so many of the people that they uh, trained up during that period, of course, have gone on uh, to uh, form, uh, set up lucrative careers, uh, creating their own uh, magical mercenary uh, bands. And uh, some of them uh, are staffed by people uh, directly trained in Girl Flame and its um, many other uh, equivalents. And others took their own training and have gone off and are now training others who have never been part of the government program, but have just uh, spent their whole uh, life as psychics uh, being trained by their employers. So uh, within you know any magical Blackwater unit, there is going to be a mix of people who uh, came from the DOD or CIA uh, or, or who just uh, started as private uh, contractors. And so uh, they are protective forces generally, and so they are uh, presumably not going to be the player characters because it is uh, very difficult to create a scenario in which the uh, player characters are just defenders waiting for something to come at them uh, and uh, and make that exciting. You want the uh, player characters to be going out and doing things and furthering an agenda rather than hanging around a bank waiting for, you know, the uh, spirits of the lizard people to attack it. 
So presumably, if you are uh, the typical player character in a uh, magical occult modern day thing, the uh, these guys are probably going to be guarding places that uh, you want to get into. Or they might be providing you with sort of the generalized intelligence and they're, they play the sort of roles of the suits slash uh, rich fat kids from across the lake. So if you're a bunch of psychics and you're doing psychic warfare in a modern day contemporary terroristy sort of scenario, you're also trying to get this intel and you're trying to prevent uh, the the jerks from telekine, uh from being able to do it or Farsight, which is the name of the actual sort of organization that fell out of um, uh, out of Girl Flame and claims to be doing um, remote viewing for the government now. So you'll be working f- sort of against and maybe with them because you're going to have your own agendas, but you're going to have needs and like uh, everybody else, you're going to have to go to maybe a rival to help you out on a really big project. Right. And so th- as you suggest, uh, we're th- the player characters are like the uh, ragtag up and comers uh, who are either just uh, getting started creating their own uh, anti-paranormal private business, uh, perhaps. Uh, and that means that they have to, you know, you can't get the cushy contracts guarding the banks. You don't have the cred yet. So you have to take the crummier jobs that require you to actually go into the jungle to, uh, you know, find the leopard people or, or right. whatever it is. I was going to say, and also because of the nature of, of Grill Flame and these other things, a lot of your contracts are not even passive security. They're going to be active. They're going to be use your remote viewing to find the threat. Use your remote viewing to to spot what our uh, business rivals might be up to. So you might be casing a rival bank or you might be casing a, a terrorist compound to find out if they're planning to go into the shopping mall and and, uh, and cause problems for your client, the shopping mall or whatever. And so you're it, not just in sort of the passive sit around and wait for something to happen mode that uh, a Blackwater might be. You are in a already a more aggressive reaching out, getting yourself into trouble mode because, you know, wherever remote viewing is, is happening, you know that there are bad guy remote viewers, whether they are um, uh, shamans from the jungle who have fallen in with the terrorists or they are uh, Soviet trained remote viewers who have fallen into the free market because there suddenly isn't a, a market for their uh, work back in Mother Russia. Yeah, they're trying to figure out how to use memes to drive people crazy and support right. democracy. Yeah, the, the, well, the, um, uh, the, 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 the current um, SVR or GRU are, are they're saying, no, 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 psychic is the wave of the past meme yeah. warriors are the wave of the future and they've got all the neuralist linguistic programmers wandering around doing that and you're and the, the old russian psychics are stuck out you know doing odd jobs for the russian mob right and uh, also this all has to be deniable still the uh, the the thing that uh, uh the the few people hunker down in the western democracies who uh, still know what's going on uh, need to protect is you know if it gets out that uh, the paranormal is real then just you know, the, that's the, the end of the social order as we know it, is that everybody, it turns out, you can go and train as a psychic. Well, that changes everything and destroys the economy and yes. uh, the last few people who are And interested. you don't want people remote viewing like the president or or whoever. And so the fewer people who know how to do it, the better. Right. Although, in fairness, currently people would have to be paid extra to remote view the current president. But that's yes. a separate question that's, entirely. That's a whole different question. And whom, yes. whom one might remote view in the privacy of one's own, yeah. were one a psychic, is a question that is not suitable for a family podcast in any way whatsoever. Yeah. That said, in this world, they have to keep a lid on it. A, as you say, avoid problems, but also there may be a situation where uh, if too much psychic activity happens, that's when you attract, you know, egregores or gray aliens or something else, right? That they've discovered that if there's a big concentration of of psychic activity in, in one space, that uh, it, it, bad things happen. Ghosts, uh, haunted dolls. Who can say? Yes, it's it's uh, ATS, Auxiliary Tulpa Syndrome. Exactly. So uh, you don't want to generate a bunch... That confuses your investigation, first of all. If you're generating a bunch of tulpas and then you go and interview them, they tell you what you want to hear and you go off and then, you know, it's it's a problem. For those who are confused, a generous Tibetan Patreon backer has promised Robin personally 25 uh, Tibetan dollars every time he says tulpa. So that's what's going on here. <laughs> yes, and you can all look forward to our... Special Twin Peaks review when that is over. Yes. Um, get a lot of, uh, I'll, I'll rake it in there. So, this gives us an idea for a, a campaign that is uh, perhaps a little more uh, lighthearted and satirical than uh, Esoterrorist, but still has its sort of uh, Tom Clancy uh, meets weirdness feel to it. You could steal the 
running a uh, enforcement slash mercenary business rules from Ash and Stars and port them into the modern day so that you, uh, with your band of mercenaries, have to make sure that you are uh, marshalling your reputation well. And if you, you know, if you cause uh, too much of a stir, too many ripples, generate too many tulpas, then, uh, you know, you won't get hired for the next one or the next con or rather the next contract you get will be even crummier and, and more difficult. So that right. if you want to work your way up, uh, to actually be a competitor to the early wave of, uh, mercenary companies who, you know, have the direct ties to the DOD and the, uh, and the CIA, you've got to keep your, your nose clean so that, uh, that gives you that, uh, same sort of, uh, bookkeeping slash moral dilemma tension that, uh, comes from, uh, the uh, laser crews in Ashen Stars. <laughs> and you can also, uh, in, in addition to those sorts of, uh, of, of sort of problems with rep, you could have a similar system where you track the amount of psychic waves you churn up and make you a target, not only for, uh, tulpas, but also for enemy psychics who are now like, Oh, these guys are a threat. We need to start paying attention to them. So you're rewarded for doing stuff under the radar and sort of keeping it on the QT. And then the other reward of course, is you do in fact, you know, nail terrorists or find the gold shipment or whatever it is that you've been hired to do. Right. And the more waves you kick up, the more, uh, the easier it is for enemy remote viewers to locate you. And the easier it is for them to spoof your remote viewing, because of course, uh, this is a back and forth. There's been a, a psychic arms race. And now uh, there are special uh, anti-viewers who uh, create uh, images to uh, suck in your remote viewers and draw them in and give you a, a totally wrong recon of the mission that you're going into in order to lead you into a trap. And there are there are remote viewing rules, of course, in Knights Black Agents and in Moondust Men, available from Pelgrane Press, just in case you were saying, God, but well, where do we find remote ru viewing rules, everybody? Right. Uh, so I, we've, uh, we've created a whole campaign frame here that require people to pick up uh, Esoterrorist, Ashen Stars, and Knights Black Agents. So I think we can uh, pat ourselves on the back and possibly... Uh, Just uh, like real government contractors, like we've figured out a way to pat the bottom line. recycled our previous reports <laughs> <laughs> and proven that current events show that we were right all along and our uh, services are just as valuable as ever. So having done that, I think it's time to uh, rush headlong into the next uh, terrifying segment. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends in Pilgrim press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The ionic columns raising to the classical pediment, the caryatids weeping into their shifts, the, the scent of laurel drifting on the air would welcome us to the mythology hut, except the mythology hut has got all kinds of doll heads in jars and creepy knives hanging around and blood smears everywhere and weird red eyes gazing at us out of a corner because we're in a creepy part of the mythology hut, a dark corner, if you will, a mythology hut dedicated to the modern and realistic version of the vampire story, or possibly, as others on this podcast may say, the werewolf story. But Robin, you have a thesis about of uh, vampire stories in the modern age, and it is... It is that uh, basic, or rather, it's a thesis about serial killer stories, that the right. modern depiction of the serial killer 
uh, he is essentially a, uh, a vampire figure that the, uh, and it's not uh, a huge coincidence that the, uh, Jack the Ripper is 1888 and then less than a decade later, Bram Stoker's Dracula comes along. And, and Stoker so- actually connects the two cases in the forward to the Icelandic edition of Dracula. So we know that, uh, Ripper is on Stoker's mind. Right. And so, and, and that's an example of, you know, the Ripper sort of being an inspiration for the vampire so that things go back and forth. But that at a certain point, the depiction of the, uh, supposedly realistic, non-supernatural serial killer begins to take on the qualities of the uh, vampire story. Now, first of all, I guess we need to quickly define our terms that the serial killer in this definition is not just someone who kills a number of people over a period of time, but it's the particular pathology of the, you know, the uh, Ed Gein, the Jack the Ripper, the Ted Bundy, the killer who uh, preys on people as a way of, and mixes sex and death. And that's, I think, the key thing that allows uh, people who portray serial killers in popular culture to then take the uh, implicit sort of uh, vampire mythos and uh, plug it into the uh, serial killer. Because as we were observing uh, in a uh, previous segment, and we put a pin in this uh, topic to talk about a bit later, that real-life serial killers are not omni-dangerous and omni-competent uh, that they are, you know, they're essentially, uh, you know, stock and ambush uh, killers who uh, use a mixture of uh, sort of con artistry and then, you know, very carefully watching their victims and and uh, and taking them that uh, they may rely on inattentive uh, law enforcement by preying on uh, the vulnerable, uh, or uh, they may just be very uh, sneaky, but they are uh, stealth attackers and therefore not particularly threatening to the people who investigate them. But there's a certain point in the serial killer story where the serial killer becomes threatening to the people who come after him and try to uh, uncover that. So uh, the early serial killer, Hitchcock, has serial killers as early as the Lodger, a shadow of a doubt. But it's really Psycho that sort of changes the conception of the serial killer uh, into uh, someone who's more overtly a monster. And uh, that comes about from Ed Gein. He committed his murders in 57. And Gein was, uh, although an ordinary non-paranormal human, was literally a ghoul because of the way that he uh, played with not only the bodies of his victims, but a bunch of other people he went and dug up because he was a real charmer. And that, that, that connection to death and the grave uh, through Gein is what then uh, leads to psycho and leads to a more monstrous, dangerous, predatory serial killer in pop culture. The Ed Gein case directly inspires Robert Block. I mean, we know that for a fact because Gein was in Wisconsin, Block was in Wisconsin. Block said as much over and over and over that Ed Gein became the the model for his serial killer. Ed Gein also inspired Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So he's a one size fits all uh, model serial killer. The other sort of strain of that is the Peeping Tom, uh, the movie from the same year as Psycho, 1960, directed by Michael Powell. And that is very much a sex equals death equals stalking movie uh, to a, you know, to a very great uh, extent and to such right. a great extent that it was horribly controversial when it when it came out. It was a career ender for the great Michael Powell. Right. And of course, uh, Michael Powell was inspired by Vertigo uh, when he made. Now, Peeping Tom, he was like, well, uh, um, you know, Jimmy Stewart seems really creepy and weird in Vertigo. What if he was a serial killer, basically? And then that becomes Peeping Tom. And so that sort of sex killer notion, which, again, you, you have the Camden Town murders in, in London in 19, I want to say, 07. There are other sort of high profile sex killer cases, Landrew uh, in France. And so the notion of sex and murder being intimately linked is a common one in popular culture and does indeed feed vampire mythology back to uh, Carmilla, for example, who is uh, the first sexy vampire as opposed to Lord Ruthven, who is the first sort of uh, uh, romantic vampire, if you will. Right. And the thing that Peeping Tom does is it puts you in the POV of the serial killer. Right. And then that metamorphoses later into the into Halloween and Friday the 13th and the uh, uh, particularly Halloween and the the slasher genre. I guess the Friday the 13ths are at least in the beginning from the point of view keep switching between victims but right. the, the the sort of murder cam 
in uh, in Halloween that then became so influential. Uh, and so we are now seeing, uh, and this is where you can start to argue, oh, well, it's not a, a vampire so much as it's a werewolf because the uh, the Jason or uh, the, the Freddy characters, they are more sort of the uh, unstoppable monsters uh, whose predation is primarily physical and terrifying as opposed to the uh, vampire who is more like the uh, sexual fanatos uh, uh, coming after you. Right. And the, the werewolf, of course, the other thing about him is that he, he's a normal person most of the time, but by moonlight or after doing an evil magic spell, he becomes a monster. And so the werewolves begin as manks of cannibals and manks of grave robbers. If you look at the werewolf of Paris by Guy Endor, that's actually about a grave robber. It's not really about what we would think of as a werewolf, but the cannibal Serial killer. Again, good old Ed Gain helping us out there. Uh, he is both a cannibal and a sex killer in the same way that Jeffrey Dahmer would be also in Wisconsin. What is wrong with you, Wisconsin, you know, decades later? Uh, I guess they need more, you know, activities in, yeah. in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, and then the next uh, sort of big shift comes with uh, Thomas Harris and the uh, various films based on his work where we get uh, Hannibal Lecter, who is definitely vampiric in his aspect that he is certainly a cannibal and uh but he also has this sort of i only drink vine quality of yeah. uh, uh irony and he is also uber powerful that he is uh you know that he has to be uh bottled up in these incredible high security conditions mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise if he escapes again which of course he inevitably does that uh you know he can you know murder you with the spring inside a pan and then you know and then he'll find a whole bunch of ways to uh, you know, hideously murder you after that. Whereas, of course, you know, your real life Jeff Jeffrey Dahmer, when you put him in a prison population... He just gets murdered by prisoners. He doesn't do so well. No. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's, it's as though he's a weedy little loser, like all serial killers are. <laughs> right. But I want to go back to sort of Silence of the Lambs there, because what Jonathan Demme and Thomas Harris do in that book and movie is sort of separate the two because we've talked about the sort of overlap of the sex killer and the cannibal in Gine and he pulls them apart. Buffalo Bill is very much the sex killer, the uh, guy who sees people as objects, whereas Hannibal Lecter is a psychologist. He gets inside you. He understands you as a person. And so he becomes in that way, vampiric as, as we're talking. And he's also, I would argue a demon. He's a literal quote, quote unquote demon. And uh, the, the, the example in where he's uh, whispering to the prisoner who's mean to Clarice Starling and the guy kills himself. That's, you know, that's not a vampire really, or a werewolf. That's a well, that's demon. Got that vampire mesmerism thing. Yeah. You can see Dracula doing that. You can see Dracula. Well, Dracula's special. Dracula, again, <laughs> uh, because Stoker is inventing so many of the rules, he puts things into Dracula that later vampire mythology doesn't because they're like, well, that, that would, that's too scary. We don't want that. Uh, right. Well, I, I'm willing to, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, you know, say that Hollywood has turned serial killers into Draculas. Yes, that's, that's, that's a legitimate thing to say. And so, and, and oddly then stopped turning Dracula into a serial killer. That's the part that blows my mind is that, you know, given that we have this proven methodology of making weird vamp vampire demon serial killers compelling and terrifying to stop doing it to Dracula seems very odd. That's an odd choice. There's nothing to do with the topic really. But that, that would be a whole other mythology. It would be. As if we need to generate more mythology. Oh, wait a minute. We need one of these podcasts every week. Yeah, so there maybe we go. we'll need to uh, come back and look at how uh, the uh, vampire, uh, now that the serial killer stole his niche, yeah. out of niche protection, the uh, vampire uh, leapt over into the uh, Byronic romantic hero. If uh, only one of us had written a book about the varying views of Dracula over the last hundred years. If only. Oh, well. Hmm. hmm. I guess what's what I'm hearing is that we're going to have to put a pin in this yet again, yet again, and, and come back uh, later uh, with a another mythology hut. However, uh, that means it's time to get out of this mythology hut into a commercial and see what's on the other side. Ken, 
Who are the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Graham Wills. Jeremy Forbing. Rob Abrazado. Nostra Dunwich. And Yuri Horneman. Welcome once again to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk with Someone Else. And today, Ken and Robin are talking to Stacy Delorfano of Contessa in the sacred confines of Gen Con, which is why there will be occasional banging, echoing, and construction noise, perhaps, through this segment and all the other segments in this series. Welcome to Bad Hotel Management 101. <laughs> and welcome to Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stacy. You are uh, walking the walk, talking the talk. I don't know if there's other gerunds that you're also doing, <laughs> but for those benighted fools who do not know about Contessa, why don't you lay it out and tell them what they've been missing? Okay. Uh, Contessa's been running now for close to five years. Um, our five-year birthday is coming up here in November. And what we do is we try to change the face of gaming by giving positive examples of representation, people that you don't often see in leadership roles. And we're an intersectional organization, so that means uh, women, um, people of color, anybody on the LGBTQ spectrum, um, people with disabilities, both visible and invisible, um, a lot of people that you don't actually see GMing games or moderating panels or doing those kind of things. And the reason that we do that is because when you see somebody like you doing something that you're thinking about doing, it's a lot easier to, to take that leap from thinking about it to actually doing it. And then also, I would assume that when you're looking at uh, groups that are underrepresented in the Doey Beardo demo here, <laughs> then not only do you get that positive role model effect, but you also get them to say to their friends, who are likewise unrepresented perhaps, hey, I GM'd and it was freaking awesome, gaming is great, we should buy lovely Robin Law's products. <laughs> And continue to GM or something like that, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, do, you, do you get? Have you got that experience where you've brought people in through Contessa and they have oh, yeah. gone back to their, you know, uh, neighborhood or their yeah. school or whatever, and they're like, "I'm going to start a gaming group amongst my uh, buddies," and Absolutely. their buddies are all now just going out and it's, you know, they told two friends and they told two friends and the whole. So I'll tell you. So so last year when when we did Gen Con, we had about 34 events. Right. Okay? So this year, we have 106 events. A great many of those people are people who came last year and played, or right. came last year and sat in an audience, or came last year and sat on a panel. And now they've seen that, they've experienced that from that point of view, and now they want to come back and lead. So we have like this huge growth, and a lot of those people are friends and friends of friends, and, and that, that word of mouth thing works really well. It takes time to actually get there, which is right, you know, yeah, why that's... we're hitting that five-year mark. We're mm -hmm. finally starting to get there. And this year, we're also going to two other conventions entirely, so you know, we have just exploded. So Contessa started uh, as part of Gen Con. No, it started online. Um, I, I actually started it, and it was for it was specifically for and about women um, when we first started it. When I first started it, um, and the reason that I did it is because I, I got really sick of the only reason anybody ever wanted to talk to me about anything was when they wanted to have an opinion on women in gaming. Right. And I want to talk about gaming. I want to talk. You know, I I write games myself. I want to talk about writing mechanics. I want to talk about you know my favorite games. I want to talk about why they're my favorite games. I am sick to death of having to tell people what it's like to be a woman in gaming or what it's like to be a insert blank here in gaming. 
So I said, you know, let's 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 put something together that's a celebration. You right. know, that we have all of the leaders, and, and I, I didn't start it out as this representational force. I didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, I said, let's, let's just start this out. Let's run a bunch of games online. We had like 50 games over, online games, all online games, over a weekend for the first Contessa. And that, I think, is where I sort of noticed you guys as Contessa online. Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. And I was, at the beginning, I was like, I'm, I'm going to keep this completely online, because, you know, this whole going to conventions thing, I hadn't done very much at all myself, and I'm like, it just sounds so intimidating. So then, you know, a couple years passed. We, the online convention thing is kind of starting to fizzle out a little bit. Right. Because I think people are going to more in-person conventions this is really what I think it is. I think it might be that online conventions act as an entry drug, and then they go to regular conventions. Right. And so right. uh, Robin and I have seen this with all kinds of things in gaming where there's like a wave effect. Yeah. So there will be a bunch of people who are adopting, and then they pass through it, and then they go off to the next stage. And then yes. there's a trough, and then another wave so yeah. maybe in another two or three years, there'll be, be another, another wave one. of online yeah. gaming. Yeah, possibly. Or with some well, maybe those technology. people are just still buffering. It could be. They, yeah. they could just be waiting to, to load. <laughs> so it starts uh, in, in an online convention, and yeah. then how do you take the uh, leap to uh, face-to-face? Gen Con actually called us and actually said, um, hey, we really, really, really are interested in increasing diversity at Gen Con, and we really want to put on some, some big events that actually can do that. They talked to two or three other groups, <laughs> and they all fell through, and they said, no, we can't do it, we don't have the time, we don't know how to do it, and they came to us, and we said, that's all we do. Right. You know, yeah. this, is, this is basically what we do, is we run conventions. So I said, what I'd like to do is run a convention within a convention. So we're going to have our own program, and we're just going to have it at Gen Con. And um, Derek, who's the one who, who did all of this, was great about it. You know, he, he gave us a room. Indispensable Derek Guter, by yeah, the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he gave us a you know, nice big room, the biggest room that they have in the ICC. You know, had 22 tables. Now, this came from me earlier in the year. I was like, I really want to take us to Gen Con. But, you know, I was like, maybe we can get like six people to run games. You know, because yeah. you know, like, I, I know there's me and I got two other people that I know I can force to do it. And then, you know, we would have to find three other people and then we'd have like, you know, six games running, right? Right. And this is part of a long tradition of, of Gen Con of having tracks uh, within Gen Con of there's all sorts of different right. sub conventions within I mean, Gen Con like for example uh, um, uh, the uh, for first exposure right. there's uh, games on demand right. the writer symposium, writer symposium yeah. lots yeah. of sub tracks yeah. within Gen Con yeah. but now are you are you still technically a sub track or are you just sort of a big bright <laughs> shining spot on the land I hope so. I, I mean, it's it's we exploded so much this year. I mean, we have we have a spot on Lucas Oil Field. Um, we've got twenty six tables, right? And we have it all weekend long, um, and we filled it up about halfway this year. So if we get the same space next year, we hope to fill even more. If you get the same it. space next year, you'll be crowded and uh, <laughs> overpressured. I hope so. Nothing ever just doubles anymore. I think. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I always see it triple, so and start, it just, just goes. Lo- start explode. lobbying now for yeah. bigger space. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, you know, so I'm hoping that next year it'll keep going and we'll keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, it's, um, they really like us. Um, I think that they're really going to like, I, I think that they're really going to like us having a, you know, such a solid presence during the entire weekend. This is something that is, you know, brand new to us. So I don't know exactly what to expect this entire weekend, you know, exactly yeah. what's going to happen. So what do people expect from a Contessa event, rather, as opposed to just an, another event at Gen Con? The only real difference between a Contessa game or panel or workshop and anything else is that we have all of our events led by either you know people who are, are minorities in some way, they're women, people of color, um, people on the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, all over the place, and um, we let anybody play. There's no, there's uh, the only eligibility requirements that we have are on the people who run the games, and it's all self-reporting by them. We don't go around and lift up skirts or, or you don't take a, a smear. Yeah, and say, are, DNA are you sure? Right. You know, or anything like that. We just you know take people's word for it. We don't ask them what what it is that they that they identify as that makes them part of a contessa. And this year is our first year being intersectional. Um, and, and that's partially, you know, due to the way the world is right now and partially due to the fact that I realized at some point in time that there were really only a couple of types of, of people that are underrepresented that we weren't including and right. we wanted to include those people. Right. And because it generally makes uh, good sense if yeah. people come and say, how can I help you do something good to say yep. by doing it with me as opposed to by going away and not doing it with and me. And we did, last <laughs> couple of years, we had a lot of gay men coming out. They were playing in our games, kind mm-hmm. of saying that they loved Contessa and everything, that they really wanted to participate. And it was so cool this year to be able to say, now you can! 
So let's let's talk about um, what your gaming, right? Let's mm-hmm. talk about your what do you what do you what do you play? What do you like about gaming? What's the thing about gaming that got you so into the hobby that you actually wanted to improve it as opposed to merely coast along on its uh, foamy uh, waves? Well, uh, I started gaming when I was about 17 um, in band. how many band geeks out there started playing games on the floor in the band room at lunchtime? But it was AD&D for me, second edition AD&D at that time. Um, and I, I loved it because I always wanted to be a writer. And it's this endless wave of creativity. You know, I remember when I was that age, I, I, around 18, right after I moved out, I would like be going to my writer's friend's house and I'd be like gushing, you gotta play this thing, Dungeons and Dragons. It's, it's basically all you're doing is making all of these stories and it's so creative and it's awesome and it's great for writers. And I was just crazy about it. And I was the person who, in the group of friends, everybody kept saying, yeah, we'll, I'll run a game. And nobody ever did. So I was the always the GM, you know, right, I was the yeah. de facto no, GM. No, once you get that brand on your neck, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't come off. Like, wow, you're willing to do four times the work, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah exactly. I guess we'll let you. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, we started, I started GMing, like, I would pick up a book and be jamming it the same day. So, you know, I started with AD&D, and then I went to World of Darkness. And right. World of Darkness, it was that time in the 90s where, you know, vampires were huge, and everybody was doing all of this stuff, and, and it was really, really cool. And um, I, I, th- I think it was the vampire book that I picked up, and I was running it that night. You know, right. I was like, we got to play. I didn't know anything about the system. But we're, you know, we're going to do it. we got to play this game. It's going to be awesome. And it just kind of kept going on through there. And I had a, a 10-year stint um, working in video games and tech because I, I was a software engineer. Um, and then I went into e-commerce. And what made me want to get back to gaming was getting back to the, the, to the analog simplicity almost. You know, right. and I missed that experience of sitting around the table with your friends and laughing and having a ton of fun and creating a story and having those tense moments and those sad moments and all those great moments with people. I didn't have that anymore. Because MMOs just do not. <laughs> no, it's the, the opposite of those moments. Right, exactly. So when you're so when you're you were you were saying earlier that you're doing game design, have you got stuff published that people can buy to help yep. Stacy as opposed to help Countessa? Um, I'm just helping Stacy is helping Countessa, <laughs> yeah, which is helping it, yep, people. Yep, yep. Because so. I quit my my nice high paying tech job specifically so that I could do gaming and Countessa, um, and doing tragic, tragic mistake. Well, <laughs> yes, this, this has yes. been um, uh, <laughs> when we do the documentary on uh, uh, ruinous disasters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, future historians, you can use this audio. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, I quit to do it specifically to do this, um, but then I started doing you know, a little bit of game design. The, the most recent thing that I did was the, the third printing of Swords and Wizardry, which is available on the Frog God Games website, which is froggodgames.com. Um, and that was, what we did is we took Swords and Wizardry, we took all of the words, left the words the same, and I created a whole female, all-woman crew of designers, artists, layout designers, and you know, I did all the art direction myself to, to relay out the book. Right, and um, it was really cool. Bill Webb gave me a bunch of money to do it, which was awesome. And you know, and I just started kind of putting it together. It took. It was. I think everything that could go wrong with publishing something went wrong. That's the gaming industry. Yeah. 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 So now I can do anything because <laughs> I got through that. Right. So if someone picks up that swords and wizardry, first of all, uh, a thousand questions pop to mind. Why swords and wizardry? Was it just that was the one they would let you play with? Or I was having a conversation. Did you actually? <laughs> Like Swords and Wizards for <laughs> yes, some yes. perhaps reason that you will explain <laughs> convincingly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an OSR game, so it's very it's very down to the basics, which right. you know I yeah. like very mm-hmm. much. It's very easy for anybody to pick up. It's a small book. It's not hard. It's a very it's a good entry point. You right. Know? And yeah. it's and it's your classic old school you know Dungeons and Dragons kind of BX game. BX model basically. Yeah. yeah. Plus, I, I knew the writer. There you go. I knew the people. And I was in a conversation um, on Google Plus about, you know, why there aren't more women involved in the OSR. And then I'm like, so, you know, it was Matt Finch, right? You know, he's he's the author. So so he was actually in the the thing, and I I actually challenged him. I'm like, okay, because he said said that he thought it was the artwork. Right. And I was like, you know, the artwork has something to do with it a little bit. But I think, think, you know, there's some other things going on there. And even if the the artwork is redone, it's going to be so subtle, you're probably not even going to, you know, it's not going to be like, Pink and glittery, you know. Right, yeah, you know, it's, it's not, not, it's not my be little like that. pony. Right, exactly. 
And I said, so, so what, if, what, if I, what if we were to test this? If I were to take all of your words, the same, and just made a new book with just the new art and new layout, and like within five minutes of me making that comment, I didn't expect this to happen at all, I get this email from them saying, let's do this! I have a contract ready for you tomorrow. So this is the graphic design equivalent of volunteering to GM. Yeah, yes, right. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I sense a pattern and it here. Took, yes. And it yeah. took a year and a half out of my life, and everything that could go wrong went wrong, and I went through all sorts of, of, of times when I was just sitting there questioning my abilities and questioning myself. And Now, if, if you can step away from it just a little bit, maybe half a step, <laughs> did do you think that what you did was more than just show what it could be done if someone actually spent a year and a half caring about game graphic design, which does not happen a lot regardless of gender? <laughs> <laughs> or is it specifically something you think that you uh, brought a, a, a bunch of um, new, uh, a bunch of nuance, what an idiotic way to say that, <laughs> but brought nuances just of perception yes. and of looking at things that made the game palpably different than it would have if it had been given to, say, John Hodgson or Hal Mangold or another good graphic designer, and they had been given a year and a half to make the uh, gussy dust up damn swords and wizardry there could be. What Do you think that there's so, a, a visible difference? Does it show yeah. in the experience? It What's definitely does. I mean, the, the, the biggest difference that, the, that I had with it is that um, when I went and picked out my artists, I didn't go to pick out artists that were specifically um, gaming artists. Right. Um, you know, I, I had an idea, and it's all how to be black and white. So, you know, I specifically went to um, profiles and just scoured through DeviantArt looking for just black and white drawings and people who are doing these kind of things. And I, the, the people that I picked, they'd done book covers before, they'd done you know other kind of illustrations, but they didn't know a lot about gaming. There were a couple of them in there that were actually gaming artists, but most of them, they had no idea what the stuff was about. So I gave them a book, I gave them the whole spiel, this is what a role-playing game is. Whenever I, you know, I gave them a page that they had to, that they were going to work with to put their illustration on, I gave them that page and a couple pages so they could get the context mm -hmm. of it. You know, I, I gave them the, the whole round, and what ended up happening is we have this whole new view into what fantasy role-playing games are because they don't have any you know preconceptions. So, like all proper social science experiment, you change so many variables that there's no way to tell what actually made the difference. Exactly. All we know is that now you've got a different thing. Exactly. That, so, what, exactly. what would be a specific example that you? Um, it really exemplifies this. Oh, I see. Well, the cover is a really, and it's a little bit of a controversial cover because it's not, it's not like a lot of gaming covers where you see everybody in action doing what you expect to be doing in the game. And I got a lot of flack for that. Right. Um, it's, um, it's, more of a, it's more of an abstract cover because I was going for this kind of gothic art feel and I went through a lot of like, like goth um, album covers and stuff like that. And the artist that I chose, she's just so great with, with she's just like ink pens and watercolors and I mean like ballpoint, cheap ballpoint pens to, right. to do this. And she just made this absolutely beautiful piece that looks like it's either like a dragon skull or, or a skull of a steer, or some some magnificently horned creature. Georgia O'Keeffe fantasy art. <laughs> yeah, coming out of this like this this pile of dead leaves, and there's like blood and bones, and it's just it's it's very very gothic and very very cool looking, and and it's a lot it's completely different than anything else that I've seen on most. Role-playing game because that may be you know like Vampire the Masquerade had yeah, that nice the, the, you know, really the, the iconic cover. symbolic cover exactly right. and that's a little bit kind of what I was going for so I mean there's there's one example and then like inside the books we have I have ten different um, illustrated uh, page borders and the illustrations change depending on what part of the book that you're in so that if you're in the inventory part it you know looks like inventory right, and if yeah. you're in the magic part it looks like magic. Um, and uh, and they are just absolutely gorgeous and beautifully done, and they're more gothic. I want to say fairy tale in a way. I try not to use that because there's some old dudes who get ah, oh, it's fairy tale. That's all girl, but it's not. It's it's not like that. Well, we it's, fortunately it's, illiterates don't buy a lot of games. So <laughs> shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. So I mean, and and just just if you just look through the artwork in it, it it's it's. It's not the same copying the '70s style that that you get to see right, in a lot of OSR type books. You're not attempting to evoke a nostalgia. Exactly. You're trying to bring in a new audience, and of course, they have no nostalgia for Dave Trampier illustrations. Right, 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 right. And it turned out really well. And I got to write my first adventure for it too, which was Zaya's Promise, which I'm running tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you know that'll be a lot of fun, and that's that's that was a cool adventure. But you know it was it was my first step really into getting into the publishing side of things, and I did so I wore so many different hats in that particular. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Don't do that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> let's uh, end with a call to action. If people want to get involved with Contessa, what do they do? Go to www.contessa.rocks, and yes, that is a full domain name. Um, and um, on our website, you'll be able to look at the about information, um, sign up for either of our newsletters or both of our newsletters. Um, you'll be able to see what events we are and where we're going, and that's where we put all of our recruiting information. And you'll see all of our social media stuff, so follow us on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And you, were, you yeah. said you're going to more conventions this year than just Gen yeah. Con. Yeah, or? this year we're also going to UConn, which is, that's U-Con, not to the UConn, um, which is in uh, Michigan. Um, and uh, used to be held at the University of Michigan and is now held at a, at a hotel in Ypsilanti. Great group of people. Um, it's about a thousand person con, so it's a smaller con and, and it's, it's focused, very focused on gaming. There aren't that many other things going on. And when is that? Um, that is November 17th through the 19th, I, I believe. Good poll. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Stacey. Thank you for having me. <laughs> The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, regrettably, even mutilate it. And this time, we have a, another a Patreon backer request. This is, is uh, not only a Patreon backer, but also a complete sentence. Ash Jackson is the scroll bard asks, why <laughs> couldn't Ken and Time Incorporated save uh, Gita and Rome from Caracalla? And I'm going to, I'm sure Ash Jackson's is the scroll bard's uh, fingers slightly slipped on the keyboard there because Ken, as an iconic hero, it's not that you can't do things. It's that by exercising your iconic ethos, which is to meddle with the time stream, you do succeed in rectifying problems. So clearly there was a problem that had to be solved. And the outcome of that successful solving the problem was that uh, Gita uh, met his uh, his fate as we know it in history. And, uh, and Caracalla, his brother, became uh, one of the murdery emperors of Rome. So first of all, uh, Caracalla becomes emperor in uh, 211 in the Common Era, and uh, on the murdery scale of Roman emperors, uh, where does he fit? As a murderer, he is no Domitian, but he does a good job, I feel. <laughs> um, we know, for example, that he killed about 20,000 people in the purges after he kills his brother, Gita, not to get ahead of the story. Right. Their father is Septimus Severus, who is one of the great Roman emperors who, after the disaster of the second century, pulls the empire together basically by main force and keeps it intact. And Severus has two sons. And as Roman emperors occasionally had the idiot habit of doing, he said, well, I have two sons. They should get along, presented with the possibility of absolute power. Let's just have them be co-rulers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that worked about as well as you would expect. And Gita gets uh, himself... <laughs> First, Caracalla tries to kill him at the Feast of Saturnalia. And when that doesn't take, uh, <laughs> you know, Gita doesn't, you know, immediately kill his brother. He's like, well, <laughs> boys will be boys, and then gets killed again. So Caracalla's mother <laughs> sets up Gita to be murdered by Caracalla's uh, soldiers. So obviously, there's something wrong in that family. And and by uh, elements of the Praetorian Guard who are loyal to uh, to, to Caracalla. Right. And so the um uh, and so Caracalla puts himself in charge, then kills approximately 20,000 people just to purge Gita's supporters out of the imperial bureaucracy and also probably to get some fast money to pay off the Praetorian guards who murdered his brother for him. So the Gita Caracalla thing plays out and then his campaign of murdering lots of Romans has to stop because he has to go off and uh, fight foreigners because the barbarians, having seen the Roman state again falling apart as it was not under Severus, start pushing their luck. So the Alemanni invade, uh, other German uh, tribes begin pouring over the, uh, the Rhine and over the sort of boundary there where the Rhine meets the Alps. And so, uh, Caracalla has to march off. The Parthians start, um, uh, making trouble as they will. Right. And so, uh, Caracalla only serves as emperor in Rome itself for like a couple of years. And then he's off to uh, fight himself some Alemanni and some Goths and, uh, never returns. Nope. Um, because at age 29, a disgruntled soldier who thinks he ought to be a centurion and uh, was passed over for uh, promotion shanks him, and uh, and that's the end of Caracalla. So <laughs> the other, the other, um, he does get in a little spate of murdering Romans on his way to fight the Parthians because. Uh, in Alexandria, uh, they heard that Caracalla had killed his brother in self-defense, and uh, they said, oh, that's hilarious, and wrote a number of arch, uh, louche, urban, hipster comedies about it. And so he got so mad hearing people in Alexandria make fun of him that when he went to Alexandria to collect logistics for his invasion of Parthia, he just murdered every leading citizen of Alexandria. Yeah, just because. Not even necessarily the satirists. Uh, no. but just whoever was close at hand. <laughs> right. And, uh, which is weird because he thought he was Alexander the Great. He was obsessed with Alexander the Great and he tried even to equip Roman soldiers as Macedonian phalangites for the invasion of Parthia to sort of get that old Alexander the Great magic, uh, for his war in the East. And of course, the fact that the legions had beaten <laughs> the the um, uh, uh, phalangites in you know three falls out of three didn't occur to him, I guess. I don't know. So, so I think we have a, a uh, at least somewhat kooky uh, megalomaniac who uh, kills yeah. a bunch of people. He does that. So uh, was history like that before you uh, intervened? Uh, what history was like before I intervened was that Gita, in fact, after Saturnalia, um, killed Caracalla and. Being the kind of guy who was a weakling who offends even his own mother, Gita is a disaster and the empire completely falls apart under the same batch of invasions that Caracalla uh, mobilizes inexpertly, but somewhat effectively to stop. Uh, the other thing that Caracalla does that Gita does not do is he promulgates the Edict of Caracalla in 212, saying that all free men in the empire are full Roman citizens. Now, that is a, you know, cornerstone of later democratic development, and you don't get it under Gita, and you do get it under Caracalla. Now, Caracalla may not have meant it. Caracalla may have done it for his own reasons, mostly to get uh, uh, provincial support for his wars. And, but, and increase the number of taxpayers, but, right? Yes, absolutely. But he does do it. And that is a, you know, that is a thing that doesn't happen without Caracalla. So you need him for a little bit. Right. So, uh, here we have this fork in the time stream, and it's one of those cases where it's the decision of one person that changes the timeline. And it's Gita's decision in uh, the new timeline, once his brother comes for him and tries to kill him, in the version that you arranged, uh, Gita goes, nah, I'll just forgive him that. You know, he gets one, he gets a freebie, that's yeah. fine. I would have so, killed him if I'd had the chance. It's fair. Yeah. So, th this seems, uh, on paper, uh, like a difficult act of persuasion. So, uh, did you uh, directly convince Gita that uh, uh, Caracalla didn't really mean nothing by it? It was just, you know, all in the uh, brotherly uh, elbow jesting? Uh, mostly what I did was I had gone back in time a good bit and convinced Julia Domna, who is Gita's mother, and convinced her that it was just uh, kids playing around. And that she then convinced Gita. 
Uh, now, again, getting a Roman emperor drunk and uh, enough to make a bad decision, not the hardest job in the world. But in this case, you need mom on side, as indeed Caracalla knew. Now, now his mom in the new timeline turned, turns against Gita. Yeah. So did, were you uh, planning that seed as well? Uh, that was a situation in which I had just expected Caracalla to massacre Gita the next time they were in a room with armed men. And the fact that uh, Caracalla goes to mom, that may have been a situation where the mom's uh, susceptibility to Gita's uh, softness, I might have overplayed that a little bit. That, right. You can't you can't say one way or the other whether or not it was me that caused his own mother to have him murdered, but, you so know. So she basically grew near, uh, annoyed because he was like, Mom! Caracal is trying to murder me again. And she just got like fed up with that. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was one of those, you know, ah, oh, he's, t- he's, he's, and she's like, I'm going to draw a line through the empire and you guys have to stay on your side of the, of the line. Mom, Mom. he's in, he's in Cisalpine Gaul. Mom. And yeah, I mean, at some point, even the most patient saintly of women who, and I'll point out that Julia Domino was deified after her death. So obviously patient and saintly, she must have been has a snap, has a moment, has Praetorian guards kill her son. You know, who hasn't done that? I ask you. Show of hands. Uh, well, yeah, you know, uh, tempers flare. So, uh, what what was the uh, negative ripple then from the time stream of the uh, empire collapsing uh, earlier during the reign of Gita? What, what were the bad uh, ripples from that that you had to rectify? I mean, the, the first bad ripple is that uh, Christianity spreads east, not west. Um, you, without the uh, uh, bureaucratic infrastructure set up by Constantine and Theodosius to spread it west, Christianity remains mostly an Eastern cult because it still hasn't spread that far out of uh, the Jewish and Greek populations by the uh, early third century. So um, you'd have a, a, a pagan and barbarian West and without Christianity, you don't have any number of uh, useful intellectual habits that move you forward into the industrial revolution. Also, it's a bunch of barbarians who wants those guys. They're jerks. Um, we would rather have uh, sensible countries like France and Spain and to a lesser extent, Italy, and um, uh, have them, you know, stable and, and operating. Uh, the last thing, of course, is that if uh, Gita allows the Parthians to swamp into the rest of the empire, you wind up losing uh, the Library of Alexandria even earlier than you lose it in, in our history. And you right. also and we've established previously that you've had to save that a whole bunch of times. It, it, it gets really, really tiresome, frankly. And you uh, have a number of knock on effects uh, among them. You have uh, the uh, plague of Cyprian instead of burning itself out in the Mediterranean. If the Parthians have gotten as far as the Mediterranean, it flows uh, East and uh, you have basically a giant smallpox outbreak in India and uh, in China and kills millions and millions and millions and millions of people who don't deserve to die of smallpox in the third century AD. Right. So uh, you've got all sorts of uh, positive benefits. Uh, now, did you have to try this a number of times to find the, was it evident that the, that the whole Gita Kala thing was like the, uh, the key to unwinding that, uh, a whole series of negative events. Well, um, demonstrating that Gita was a da- disaster was pretty easy because he was a soft-headed goof. But figuring out that Caracalla was at all better did take some replays because for a while, you know, once you're saying these guys are both kind of horrible, maybe we take the whole thing out and put a, a, a friendly general or a cousin or an uncle in charge. It turns out none of them give you the edict of Caracalla. None of them give you the um, uh, stabilizing and extending effect that you need. So that did take a little back and forth. Right. It, it sort of, those two guys is like, you know, cancer and typhoid having a fight. You exactly. Root, root for. Right. And, you know, if that means that Julia Domna and I have to, you know, meet more often, that's just, that's in the reports. It's all required. Right. Other than, you know, uh, being an accomplice to the murder of one of her sons, she's sort of charming. She's she's very charming. As as I've mentioned before, she was deified. And another thing about Julia Domna that people don't know, yeah, she would um uh, she would follow her husband Septimus Severus around to the wars. She didn't just sit at home in Rome, um you know, hanging out and eating peeled grapes. She was out there uh, knitting booties for the soldiers. She was terrific. She was so a, a great what, lady. What were the circumstances of her deification? The circumstances of her deification are that uh, when (laughs) Caracalla dies, uh, she begins to feel that her time is up. And rather than 
stick around and cause problems, she commits a dignified Roman suicide. And in Emesa, at least, they thought that that was good activity. Emesa also acted as a military marshalling ground, a big uh, uh, military center. So probably a lot of the soldiers who knew and uh, and worshipped her already as mother of the camp is what they called her um, uh, and mother of the fatherland decided to make it a military cult. And so that's the that's the specific uh, uh, origination of that. The other thing that she did is that she got on the good side of the philosopher Philostratus. And uh, it's as always, as FDR knows, if you want to be remembered well in history, be nice to writers. So <laughs> just a little tip there. Right. Uh, future matriarchs of the world. Be nice to writers. So she had her own little uh, WPA going there. Right. And also she was a Syrian woman and Emesa is a city in Syria. So there was a little hometown pride happening. Right. So there was sort of a, uh, a self martyrdom there. And then, uh, and then a personality cult uh, arose around uh, that, which was uh, better than being presumably uh, attacked and uh, murdered by whoever the enemies were, or or used as a as a uh, as a coin, basically in a royal in a royal power game type situation. Right. So, who uh, takes over for Caracalla? Uh, the guy that takes over for Caracalla is a guy named Macrinus, and Macrinus is so useless that Heliogabalus takes over for him. And Heliogabalus is like, oh, people like crazy. People like <laughs> believing your things. People like random murders. I can yeah. do that. And make Rome great again. Make make Rome all kind of thing again. Heliogabalus is the kind of guy that in order to make up a story weirder than actual Heliogabalus, you have to say that he would smother his enemies in a rain of rose petals during a, a banquet. And so that's... That's possibly the only thing he didn't do in his uh, in his life. But Heliogabalus is a whole different ball of wax. He's definitely on the listicle of, uh, of crazy Roman emperors, but he's his own imperial uh, situation. And uh, until such time as one of our Patreon backers dispatches you in time to, uh, I don't know, uh, dry up his rose petal supply. <laughs> right. I think that that's the end of uh, not only this segment, but another installment of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askthagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>